You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. I was on my way over here this morning to do this show, and the phone rang, and it was my mother. And we were talking about the fact that my son, who I, I talk about a lot, is in the market for a job these days. He just graduated from college. He's looking for a job in, in sports media and sports marketing, and about how different his reality is applying for jobs in the world today, where in addition to making a connection, you have to fill out an application online and everybody's on LinkedIn, and how different his reality is than my reality was when I was applying for my first job and my mother's reality when she was applying for her first job. And it all sort of came together with me when I realized I would be sitting down in the studio this morning with Robbie Ludwig, Dr. Robbie Ludwig, who is um, a good friend of mine for many, many years on the Today Show, but author the also the author of a great new book called Your Best Age is Now. And Robbie's book centers a lot on the fact that our midlife realities today are so different from the midlife realities of any other generation, mm-hmm. not just when it comes to looking for a job, but when it comes to life in general. So, Robbie, it's great to see you. It's so great to be here. I'm so happy to talk about this topic. I feel like it's my responsibility to spread the word. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think the word midlife stops a lot of people. Yeah. When I was putting this book together, I was thinking, oh, you know, you know, when you're thinking about titles, I was thinking the midlife myth, you know, and including midlife in there. And, and the editor said, whenever you mention midlife in a title, it's like dirty diapers. Nobody wants to touch it because it feels like you're over the hill. It's just a really unattractive branding that's associated with it. And yet I'm 51, right? I'm mm-hmm. midlife. No, no question. I look at the longevity charts and I'm actually a little <laughs> past midlife because most women these days live to, I think the number is 84, which, which puts me past midlife, which is not really a happy thought, but. And not true according to the research. I was just asked by somebody who was turning 63, a very young 63. When do you exit midlife? And it's when you consider yourself old. So I'm sure you don't consider yourself old. I don't even consider myself mid. I've got to say. I don't either. I don't either, which is so interesting, which is typical of women and men in midlife. It's we're arriving at that date later and later. So there was a study that was done and they found that women, when they arrived at 53, is when they consider themselves midlife. So I've got two years. Yeah. So you've got two years. You haven't even <laughs> arrived yet, which is very different than in the past. Um, when I went to go listen to Gail Sheehy, who wrote the famous passages, passages, she was saying that she hit her midlife crisis at 35. Think about that. That's in the 70s. And it's when everybody was kind of living along the same timeline. They would get married at a certain time. They graduate college. 
they would get married at a certain time. They'd have kids at a certain time. Their kids would all go to college at the same time. So 35, when you think about it now, that's when everybody's getting started. They're just getting into the groove of life. Right. They're having kids a lot later. They're right. buying homes a lot later. They're getting married a lot later or not at all. That's right. That's right. What made you want to explore this stage of life, whatever we call it? Well, I think once I arrived there, I was very curious about it. And I had this distinct moment where I was interviewed for a, a job, a TV job. And the casting director said, um, and what's your age? And I'm not guarded about my age at all. And I remember pausing and then telling her my age and thinking, I'm not self-conscious about my age, but what does it mean to her? Mm -hmm. And will this knock me out of the ballpark? I did not get the job. I don't know what they were looking for. I don't even know if it ended up being a job. Um, but I remember thinking, my gosh, you know, have I hit my heyday? Is it too late for me? Um, and yet I looked at all of these amazing people around me who were in midlife they looked better than ever before. They were fit. They were happy. They seemed to be living their dreams. They didn't look like what you would think of as being over the hill. And and just my patients, too, uh, achieving their dreams during midlife. So I realized something wasn't adding up. Uh, and I wanted to research and say, hey, what's going on? And when you looked at the books, they were depressing. Mm -hmm. It's like you wanted to slit your wrist. It was all about loss. How do you deal with not being noticed anymore? How do you deal with being rejected? I mean, it was how do you deal with your bum falling to the ground? You know, it was I was like, this is what they're telling people about midlife. Of course, we're going to feel depressed about it. And yet when I looked at the modern research, it was telling a very different story, a much more positive story that seemed accurate to my observations. And I thought we need a book that you know, captures all the positive things going on at this time so we can change the narrative because it's a very dangerous narrative we have right now. I think midlife, too, is when a lot of people are coming into their own financially, mm -hmm. especially now when there are a lot of hurdles to getting where you want to be mm -hmm. in your financial life, whether we're talking about student debt or credit card debt or coming back from the recession. Absolutely. I mean, I notice the women in my practice, they're very conscious of money. They start to think about retirement. It's like they grow up and they realize they need to take responsibility for themselves. They can't rely on somebody else, which I think is a very different dynamic. Sometimes um, people get to what we used to call a midlife crisis, and I don't hear people referring to it mm -hmm. as much, but they get to a point in their their life where they realize, I wish I had done this a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. You know, either you get divorced or right. you want to change careers or you, you know, something stops you. How do you teach people through this book in a general sense, and we'll get to the financial in a second, but how do you teach people to take those regrets and use them to fuel change? I think it's really important for people to know that you can't get through life without regrets. So what happens is people can get stuck on their regrets and feel that they're a bad person or shame themselves or feel really stuck. And I love the notion of failing up. Not that regrets are about failure, but very often people feel like they failed in a certain way. So the good news is you can't get through life without having that feeling. So you want to use that feeling to have an honest moment with yourself. What do you want to change? 
What do you want to include in your life now? Have a new dream. Use your regret as a way to fuel your future and fail up. I love that idea. So use your failure to figure it out and be really proactive. Don't feel like the victim in your own life for too long. We are going to have that feeling, but don't get stuck there. And when we're talking about financial regrets, mm-hmm. and we get a lot of financial regrets from our listeners. Who, Story of my life, financial who, regrets. Who feel like, well, you can tell us how <laughs> right, you I'll overcame you yours. yours. But yeah. our listeners who feel like, oh, shoulda, woulda, coulda done this much sooner. Yeah. And so you can't do anything about that. All you can do is start now. Start now. Do what you always wanted to do now. If you want to be financially smarter, more responsible, educate yourself. Talk to the right people. Use your wish as motivation to get better. As long as we're alive and we have our cognitive ability um, and we have a goal in mind, we really can achieve what we want. In the book, you're very, very open about your own fear. Yeah. That you woke up one day realizing or thinking about the fact that you were afraid you might outlive your money in retirement. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, just to make you feel a little better, that's the most common financial fear going. And there have been studies that show that people are more afraid of outliving their money in retirement than they are of dying. Right. Because when you're dead, you're dead. You don't need money. It's kind of a a relief in that way. Um, Yeah. You know, in my book, I I say that you want to borrow from the adolescent energy and not only to ask, you know, what your older self would tell your younger self. We hear that question, right? What would your older self tell your younger self? And I say, what would your younger self tell your older self? And my younger self would say, you know, get smart with money. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, no, tremendous fears in, in terms of money. I had this very kind of magical thinking when it came to finances and things will just work out or money will fall from the sky. And once you hit midlife, you realize that's not the case. I mean, money is reality. And it kind of defines the parameters of your life, what you can do and what you can't do. Um, So, you know, I realized I needed to get smarter. I'm not saying that I'm brilliant when it comes to money, but I'm no longer sticking my head in the sand because that's self-destructive. I'm thinking somebody else will fix it or save me. How did you get yourself to make the changes that you made and what specifically did you do? Well, I had this moment where I was feeling really pressured by mounting personal bills, just bills for spending on clothes and accessories. And here I had arrived at this fairly successful place professionally where I was known a little bit for what I was doing. And I was like, there's a huge disconnect here where I'm getting phone calls for somebody asking me when my check is coming in. And yet I'm seen as this person who should know things about the world and life and getting jobs. And I I had this moment, usually in the bathroom. I don't know. The bathroom tends to be this honest moment. Like I'm looking at myself after a shower. I'm not sure. And I said, you can't do this anymore. You need to grow up. You need to be more in sync with the person you are on the outside. And it was sheer will, just not wanting to be this person that could not rely on myself 
to do what needed to be done, to pay bills that needed to be paid, to not spend on certain things that I shouldn't be spending on. And it's a constant challenge for me because my tendency is to be impulsive, which is part of the fun part of my personality, but Mm -hmm. it's not fun when it comes to finances. I think that's important, actually, that it's not one and done. It's not that you just made this decision and boom, everything changed. Mm -hmm. It, 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 if you're a spender, and there are a lot of people, I'm a spender, not spending is always a question that you have to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. I had to redefine how I considered spending and not spending. I mean, I can analyze the whole thing. And I will often joke, you know, it's easier to be a heroin addict than a spending addict. Um, but I had to constantly redefine it, like see my bills as a way to thank the credit card companies for giving me the opportunity to get something that I wanted, to really think through, is this something that I'm going to really want to have? Is this going to take away from some other area of my life or my family's life or my children's life? So, you know, started to think really beyond myself, but it's constant. It's something I'm always doing. It's a continuing conversation. Absolutely. And it has to be. I want to take a second and and just pause this conversation. I'm talking with Dr. Robbie Ludwig to remind everybody that her money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we have worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Dr. Robbie Ludwig, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, hitting 50, starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. So in the book, you talk a lot about the average woman's relationship with money at Mm -hmm. midlife. Tell me what you're seeing with your patients, what you're seeing in the research, and how's it different, a woman's relationship with money at midlife different than when she's older or when she's younger? Well, certainly at midlife, um, there's more of a focus on working you know, and how to prolong one's job or how to think about transitioning into something else and earning enough money or reevaluating what it means to be a success. You know, we sometimes we grow up um, thinking, oh, we want the mansion and the Mercedes and uh, the big house. And so at midlife, priorities change. Why is that? I think we realize what we've been taught to want may not be what really speaks to our soul, what really matters to us. In midlife, it's a stop and pause moment. Is that an age thing or is it a loss of a parent thing and I got a divorce thing? The world is a scary place thing. Absolutely. I mean, any of those experiences can humble us, can get us to look at the world differently. Really, when we hit midlife, we start to think about legacy. What message do we want to leave to our children? What message do we want to share with the world? Are we really using our talents? And this is usually when women become very creative and very insightful. And we see with artists and film directors and poets and writers that they usually hit an artistic peak. 
at this time because you know yourself better. Mm -hmm. You know who you are. You know what you want. So I think at midlife, we see a redefinition of what success is, and that includes money. You know, maybe you don't want to work as many hours. Maybe you say, I don't need all this extra stuff. I'm hearing that a lot. Um, Of course, there are the people that want the extra stuff, but I don't need the extra stuff. The extra stuff can be a burden, unnecessary, weigh someone down. Um, So it's rethinking about their relationship to work and success and how much do they really need in order to do what they want to do. Are there any tools that we can use to almost self-diagnose and put us in a happier place where Mm -hmm. our money is concerned? Yeah, I think it's being honest with yourself. You know, what do you want your life to look like? And what will it cost to make that life happen? And if you don't know what it will cost, because I wouldn't know that answer, Mm -hmm. but I would ask someone like you. I would ask a financial planner or my accountant or somebody who I could really respect, who could talk to me in a way that I could hear. You know, I once had a financial planner and she was very critical and devaluing. She didn't mean to be. It wasn't done from malice. It was just her persona. And it didn't work for me. I needed somebody nurturing who could be kind and kind of walk me through the steps of why I needed to do certain things and why it was important. We put so much stock in financial professionals, just like we do in doctors, Mm -hmm. that we give them this power to communicate with us the way that they communicate rather Mm -hmm. than the way that we need to hear it. Mm -hmm. I switched financial advisors because I... And, and I, you know, I can, I can run my own numbers, mm-hmm. but I needed to have a conversation about meeting my goals. Mm-hmm. And my old advisor just would not have that conversation with me about this is where I want to be in five years and in 10 years and in 15 years. And is it all moving in the right direction? And are the pieces going to work together? And can we sit there and map it out? Mm-hmm. If you're not getting what you need, then it's not the right relationship for you. I agree. You. It's just like a therapist, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's just because somebody has all the best degrees in the world, if you can't say what comes to mind and truly get better and see that your life is getting better, then switch people. So um, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, you have to understand what you need and and be with somebody who can really talk to you in your language and not make you feel stupid for not understanding or calm your anxieties if that's what you need to do. Before we wrap up here, I want to talk a little more about work and, mm-hmm. and its place in our lives these days. I think I mean, you said at midlife, that's sort of where work becomes most important for women. Mm -hmm. Am I understanding that right? Well, I I think women, first of all, we're always going to have goals no matter what age we are. So sometimes at midlife, women decide they want something slightly different or um, get bored at the job where they are and get a little lazy. I had a patient who, you know, had been at this job for a long time and wasn't bringing her A game. And so women feel sometimes vulnerable at work due to salaryism or they feel like they're being replaced with younger workers. And so my message to women is stay current, stay modern, 
Make sure that you're able to change with the times. Know about technology. Get a mentor who's maybe younger. Mm -hmm. Find out what they're doing. Listen to how they're thinking about the world so that your mind is really expanded and you really can look at yourself or have a friend tell you what you need to change so that you know when people look at you, they're seeing somebody who's relevant and alive and passionate. When you say stay younger, do you mean look younger? Well, in some cases, I mean, in some cases you want to obviously dress appropriately. Um, but I was having this conversation with Kate White and she's like, you know, like if Kate White, the former editor of yes, Cosmopolitan, she's like, written a number of great books. We had a funny books. conversation about it. She said, you know, like, Robbie, if nobody is wearing pantyhose, maybe that's something you want to look at. And I told her, I said, Kate, I, I still really love pantyhose. I might be of a, a different generation. She's like, all right, well, you can keep your pantyhose. But it's it's thinking like, how's my look? Because people do make judgments. I'm not saying change who you are. Just use everything about yourself to convey the message you want to convey. Take ownership. And the same with finances. The moment you feel in control and take small baby steps. You know, the moment you can trust yourself is the moment you can be happier. You've gotten the book, and I want to run through them as sort of a lightning round. You've got four common work crises. Let me throw them out at you. Okay. Define them. Okay. And give me a piece of advice for women who are stuck in these difficult situations. Okay. All right? The lost job crisis. Clearly, someone lost their job. Right. What do you do? Use your connections. At Midlife, you know so many people. Contact everybody. Use social media to your advantage. And give yourself time, really. But use everything you know to sell yourself. You have a range of experiences. Use it and feel confident about it when you're meeting with different people. The getting back in the saddle crisis. So if you've been a stay-at-home mom yeah. and you're ready to take all your talents and put them back to work, don't look at being out of the workforce is not working. You have skills as a stay-at-home mom. And what's so nice is that in the modern era, uh, people are no longer working at jobs for 10 years. You know, they're taking time out. They're being entrepreneurial. So use that time and say, listen, I was a consultant during that time, or here's what I learned how to do. I learned how to manage my whole household, and I was available to the school system. I coordinated this charity. Really look at your time as valuable. Don't undersell yourself. I see a lot of people, if they're not connected to a paycheck, they don't know how to define their work. You're working no matter what you're doing. So identify that so you can convey it to other people who you're interviewing with. The crisis of confidence. What is this one? This is when we give, this is like what happened when I was asked my age. It's when we give ourselves an expiration date. How old are you, by this, the way? I'm 50. So it's when we buy into this notion that it's too late for us. It's not too late. There's always a way to include something you want to do into your life. And if you don't get money from it right away, who cares? Define yourself. There are people who become physicians, they start at 50. So don't kind of write yourself out of the script prematurely because we really at midlife are living so much longer. We don't want to waste this time when we look good. We still have our faculties. We're better than ever before. We cope better. We see things in a more positive light. We want to use that time to our advantage. The hating my job crisis. Yeah, you know, sometimes you're going to hate your job, and that's the moment to stop and think, what do I really want to do? Can I make my job more pleasant? 
Is there something at my job I can do to tweak it or learn more? Because sometimes it's boredom or just being stuck in a rut. Or do you really need to rethink what it is you want to do um, and, and have a plan B? I think that's perfectly okay. But don't quit your day job. Yeah, you need to pay your rent. You need to do all of those things. You're not going to be happy if you just kind of leave your job without a paycheck. So be smart about it, but you can make those shifts that need to happen. Dr. Robbie Ludwig, the book is called Your Best Age Is Now. Congratulations. Where can we find you? You you can find me, drrobbieludwig.com. It's on Twitter, Instagram, and basically everywhere. Yeah. You could probably just find me on the street, just walking around. Yeah. Come find me. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. And now on to your questions. Kelly is in the studio with me. Kelly, what's the best way people can reach us? Tweet us with the hashtag HerMoneyPodcast. You can find us on Facebook at Gene Chatsky or email us, gene at genechatsky.com. We're always on all three looking for questions, comments, and best of all, reviews. Reviews. Yes. Review us. Please tell us what you like and what you don't. We can take it. All right. What do we have in the mailbag? We have a tweet from Pack Your Pixie Dust this week. I love that. I have Tinkerbell now in my in my brain. I know. It's a fun it's a fun handle. She asks, how much of an emergency fund should we have? What's the formula? Oh, boy. Okay, so the formula gets people in trouble. And and the formula is essentially if you are a single income family, you want to have a six month emergency cushion. And that's of living expenses, not of the amount of money that you spend each month. If you're a two income family, and you back each other up, it can be three months. But where I want people to start is just aim for $2,000 because $2,000 can get you out of a lot of emergencies and half of all Americans do not have that much. So start with a manageable goal, an achievable goal. Once you get to the $2,000, then we can talk about how to get to the bigger nut. And we don't hear the 2000 tip often enough. And I think people get discouraged or intimidated by the three to six months and also confused because it's hard to calculate what that means. Right. So 2000 is a great, great goal, I think. Start there. Start there. We also received an email from Erica. She just started listening to the podcast and she's already a big fan. So thank you. Thanks, Erica. Here's a bit about Erica. She's 32, recently divorced from a marriage in which she was the breadwinner. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the divorce pretty much wiped her clean. So she's building her savings back up and she's eager to get back on track. She writes, I have a small amount in a Roth IRA, but haven't contributed in the last few years. Building back up my six-month emergency savings fund first would make me feel more secure than putting money into the retirement account at this point, but this will take some time. And I've heard you talk about on your podcast the importance of investing. What do you think I should do? I totally, totally get it, Erica, from so many perspectives. I got divorced at 40 and felt in many ways like I was just starting from scratch all over again. And what I have to say to you is that you have eight more years than I did, and you will definitely get there faster than you thought that you would. The problem with aiming to fully flesh out that six-month emergency cushion, as we were just talking about, is that it prevents you from doing some other important things. I'd like to see you aim to get at least a couple thousand dollars in emergency savings, but then make sure you're capturing all the matching dollars that you're eligible for in your employer's retirement plan. And even if you have an IRA or some other sort of plan that is not matched, I want you to at least split your contributions so that 
probably about 80% is going into the retirement account and the other 20 is going into the emergency cushion, it'll make you feel good to know that you're doing both. And although we never like to encourage people to pull money out of their retirement account or borrow from their retirement account, if it's a Roth IRA, it's pretty flexible. You can get at the money. And if it's a 401k, you can borrow. Not that I'm encouraging it, but it is an option if you need it. And that should make you feel safe. Thanks, Jean. Oh, thank you. And thank you, Erica. And I just, I'm thinking about you now. And I know that you are going to make great, great headway. And if you need us, we are here. So please reach out. We're here to help. So we are in the heart of summer here in New York. And depending on where you live, temperatures could get even hotter before they start to come down for fall. Rising temperatures, of course, mean rising electricity bills, which is why for this week's Thrive, we have rounded up Carrie Cooper. She is the CEO of Choose Energy. She's calling in from sunny California to help us out with some tips and tricks so that our wallets don't feel the heat. Carrie, welcome. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Carrie, tell me a little bit about Choose Energy. I know it's kind of like an Expedia for energy, but how does that work? It's a pretty simple um, experience of putting in your zip code, and we have um, we've curated the top suppliers. Um, so our suppliers, all the plans we have on are ones where there are no hidden fees and gimmicks behind them, and we pick suppliers that we know are going to have great customer service, and then we help you find the best plan. So we show you the best long-term plan. I'll show you the most popular plan. So you have, okay, there's 400 other people in my zip code that have chosen this plan in the last month, um, and the best, the best green plan. And often what you'll find is, you know, your choices are – it's a very particular uh, decision criteria, I think, for each of us, just like shopping for jam is at the grocery store of what's important. You know, for me, I can go green for sometimes even less money. Sometimes it's a slight amount more, like maybe a latte a month, but it's a great choice for me to not – you know, I don't have to have solar on my roof where I just, you know, if you're an apartment dweller, you can't. It's a great way for me to choose that or to go with a long-term plan where I know um, my energy expenses will be fixed. And if somebody goes through the process and chooses their own energy, what are the potential savings? It depends on where you're starting from, but what we see typically is anywhere from 20 to 30 percent on the supply part of your bill, which can be you know, up to $200 a year, depending on how large your house is and how much energy you're using. Fantastic. So many people now live in places in the country where they have a choice about their provider for electric. In other words, they live in a deregulated state. Can you explain that? How did it come about? And and what does it mean exactly? Absolutely. About half the U.S. lives in a deregulated state. A lot of the East Coast and Texas, the big states, California um, is not one of them. But uh, if you go out to New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, and, of course, Texas, Illinois, um, in those states, uh, you can choose who provides your power. So the lines and pipes into your home are still regulated. You still have the same, you know, if power goes out, you still have a utility to call. But you can choose who provides the power. So if you want to go green without having to put solar on your roof or if you want, you know, one of the things that I think fits very well with what you talk about, Jean, is just being in control of your finances. And I think one of the things that we all face is in the times of rising energy, 
often the electricity prices themselves go up. So I can sign up for a long-term plan that makes my my budgeting much more stable. On I know I'm going to pay a fixed amount per per kilowatt hour that I use,、um, so that I can have more control over my、um, over my budget. Do you find that most people in this country are overpaying for electric? I think that most people in this country don't give very much thought to their utility bill.、Um, I think there is, you know, honestly, like it's it's a bill that you probably put on auto pay and you never really take a look at. A lot of what you talk about having control and being in power, I think, is the is the biggest piece that、uh, consumers need to be aware of. There are a lot of people. Who end up with energy spikes that they could have better control over, particularly at times of really high heat or really,、um, really, really cold, like the polar vortex last couple winters ago. At those times, both the amount of energy that demand that happens to the grid, as well as the cost of the underlying fuels, spike and、um, and drive a lot of expense that is unnecessary into your budget. So I know that you say that by knowing the parts of your utility bill and the math behind it, you can save money. Can you sort of walk me through what those important parts are and how somebody can audit their electric bills, and if there are any differences for people whether they live in a deregulated state or a regulated one? Can you explain those too? Sure.、Um, you know, about half of your bill is the supply of how much electricity you're using, and about half of it is the transmission and distribution.、Um, you have control over the supply side, either from your ability to change providers or your ability to control how much you use, how you think about conservation. So, I think the first tip I would say is open your bill, take a look at it. A lot of bills will show you how you're doing compared to your neighbors, compared to best in class. Take a look and, and have a better understanding of. How many? What is your usage? I think when I talk to people about kilowatt hours, their eyes roll back in their head. Like, I don't know <laughs> if I use ten or if I use a thousand. What's a kilowatt hour? But it's a pretty important,、um, you know, base of how you are being charged. So just taking a look at that and understanding, you know, what is out there、um, as a as an alternative is important. You know, even if you live in a regulated state, there are choices for you. So you know, I live in California. When I open my electricity bill. I called and I got、um, onto a time of use plan. So we are a dual working family. Nobody's at home during the day. So I saved about two hundred dollars last year by changing to a time of use plan. What is that? Me more if I were using. The, yeah, what? Sorry. What What is a time of use plan? I don't think I've ever heard that term. Um, they charge you more if you use it in the middle of the day in the peak time. So probably from about nine to five, nine to seven. It probably varies by utility. They'll charge you more if you use a lot of electricity then. So if you,、um, you know, when I had a nanny at home with young kids, she was doing laundry and doing, you know, dishes, etc. Like I wouldn't have been good to be on a time of use plan, so I would have paid more because we were using more during those peak hours.、Um, but because we're not home,、um, it made a lot of sense for us. I'm still going to do laundry on the weekend. I'm still going to do my dishes later at night. So it works well for our family. One tip is take a look at what choices are available to you. The other thing that we're seeing more and more of is surge pricing. So much like an Uber, for example, will surge price when there's a lot of demand at a time like now, where the grid gets really hit hard in the afternoon when everybody comes home and the air conditioning goes on and people are cooking dinner. The utilities will often charge surge pricing. So understanding those surge days and when they're going to happen, and maybe taking your family out to dinner, or maybe you know choosing not to do your wash on those days, can drive a lot of your ability to conserve. Energy when it's most expensive. Are there any ways? I mean, I'm I'm afraid I would 
know when the surge days are coming, but then come home and, and forget? I mean, are there any sort of set it and forget it kind of gadgets or mechanisms or things that you can use to make sure that you're not using the energy at the most expensive times? Well, you know, the easiest way there is probably a thermostat that you, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy nest. You know, those are much easier because you can control it from your iPhone. So if you forget and you're, you know, out to dinner, then you can turn your, your thermostat back up. But even, you know, the basic one that you can get for $30, as long as you program it, it works. And every three degrees that you lower your bill during cold times or increase it during heat waves can result in a 10% savings on your annual bill, which is a big number. What what else can we do that's summer-specific when it comes to saving ourselves money? I think, you know, there are um, there are basic things around paying attention to when you're, when you're, when you're doing work. So when you're doing your laundry, when you're doing, um, uh, you know, washing the dishes, et cetera. If you turn your – strangely, like I think for me it's a little counterintuitive, but if you wash your clothes in cold water, you can save 50 cents a load. If you turn your water heater – um, a little cooler, and when you take showers, it saves um, from heating that. You know, there are, you know, if you use a microwave instead of a stove, um, it can save you, you know, actually both energy of heating up your home as well as um, as well as a lot of, you know, cost and how much it takes to heat up that water. Um, close your blinds during the day. If you close your blinds, those, those afternoon hours from like 1 to 6, you can really lower your temperature um, in your home, which means you don't have to spend as much on AC about 40% of our unwanted heat comes through open curtains and blinds. Wow. That's kind of incredible. And do the same sorts of tricks work in the winter? They do the opposite way of opening your blinds to use some solar heat the other way. Um, and then being thoughtful about where drafts are in the winter, right? So I think the other opposite of that that happens is in the winter you're heating your home and then um, covering up drafty doors and windows is really important. Last question. Are there any apps or any gadgets that you particularly love to save yourself money on electric? Well, if you're in a deregulated state, do your homework and choose energy um, is a great place for you to go and see what's available. Like The easiest analogy I use is as Kayak or Expedia are to travel, we are to energy to give you a chance to look at and see what are all the available plans. I actually really do think your own utility likely has a great, if it's not an app, at least sign up for text alerts so you know when the surge days are going to be and you can understand your bill and pay attention to it. And then I think finally, I do love my nest. I think, um, you know, when I forget to turn something on or off, I can, I can do it later when I do remember. Um, I can leave the house pretty warm and turn on the, either the heating or the air conditioning, you know, half an hour before I show up. So I walk into a house that is warm or cool, but not, um, not forced to heat all day or cool it all day to get there. That's terrific. Um, Carrie Cooper, CEO of Choose Energy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I love, I love what you're doing. I've listened to all of your podcasts. I think all of these things about giving women especially, but consumers choice and like making them think about where they're spending their money is so important. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate it, and, and I um, appreciate your time. I think these are great tips. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Her Money. I want to thank my guests, Robbie Ludwig and Carrie Cooper. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up next week, a great discussion with Brene Brown. You know Brene. She is the author of one of the top five TED Talks ever. It's been seen more than 25 million times. We're going to talk about 
shame and blame and vulnerability and how they all create a mixed-up soup of emotions when it comes to your money. It'll be a terrific conversation. As always, we want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you from PRX. We'll talk soon.